Part two, chapter seven of Israel's Faith. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Social Duties. After God had given the Ten Commandments, He gave to Moses a series of judgments, that is to say, the laws which were to regulate their manners and their dealings with one another. God might have said in a few words, be just and kind to each other, and this would have included everything, but it would not have been sufficiently practical, so it was necessary to go into detail. Laws Relating to Servitude The first series of these judgments referred to slavery, or more properly, to servitude. Now, it might be supposed that one of the first laws that would have been given to a nation just released from slavery, would have been a law for putting an end to all sorts of bondage. Indeed, many writers who have looked only on the surface have regarded the Mosaic law as cruel because they believe that it permitted slavery. But it will be seen that slavery, in the sense in which we understand it, was distinctly prohibited. God ordains that he that stealeth a man and selleth him or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. So slavery, such as existed until lately in some parts of America, and such as still exists in certain Spanish possessions in parts of Asia and Africa, could never have existed, for it was an act punishable by death to steal a human being. Still there was a mild kind of slavery permitted. First, strangers who were taken prisoners of war could be bought and sold as bondsmen. Secondly, Hebrews who had been found guilty of certain crimes were sentenced to penal servitude and were liable to be sold as slaves, but for no longer than six years, unless they of their own accord renewed their servitude. In the seventh year he shall go out free for nothing. Thirdly, Hebrews who had become so poor that they could not support themselves or their families might sell themselves into servitude but their servitude would also expire at the end of the sixth year, unless voluntarily renewed. No unkindness of any sort was permitted towards servants or slaves. A runaway slave might not be captured and restored to his master. If a master struck his servant or slave and injured him, however slightly, he was obliged to let him go free. When the time of servitude was over, the Hebrew slave or servant did not go out into the world empty-handed. He was to have enough to enable him to recommence his life of freedom. Thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy flock, and out of thy floor, and out of thy winepress, of that wherewith the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. Thou shalt give unto him, and thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondsman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Therefore I command thee this thing to-day, now, we understand why the laws of slavery or servitude were the first of the judgments given to the Israelites. God reminds us, you have yourselves been bondsmen. Remember, when you become masters, not to be tyrants like the Egyptians, but to be kind and merciful to those you have to serve you. Protection of Life and Limb If a man killed another intentionally with guile, it was willful murder and he was surely to be put to death. But if a man killed another by accident, then he was to be exiled to one of the cities of refuge, 
where his life was to be safe from the avenger of blood this exile must have been a terrible punishment for carelessness and must have prevented many of those accidental deaths which now too commonly occur from negligence and want of thought in olden times and even in modern times among barbarous nations was the custom for the nearest relative of a person killed either intentionally or by accident to be the avenger of blood and to slay him who had caused his relative's death the humane mosaic code permitted this revenge to be carried out only when the death was the result of a willful act clearly proved and the avenger of blood was not allowed to follow to the city of refuge and to slay the man who had been guilty of manslaughter or accidental killing even the life of the murderer was not to be sacrificed without an absolutely certain proof of his guilt he could be put to death only on the evidence of at least two witnesses and these were bound to be eye-witnesses not merely witnesses bring circumstantial evidence or or facts tending to criminate the accused but actual eye-witnesses of the crime other crimes besides murder were punishable by death such as blasphemy or speaking disrespectfully of god worshipping strange gods sabbath-breaking striking a parent cursing a parent man-stealing and practising witchcraft but the punishment of death was so hemmed in by laws of evidence all in favour of the accused especially by the law requiring two eye-witnesses of the guilt that an execution was a very rare occurrence and the death punishment might rather be regarded as a preventative a terror to evil-doers than a social revenge the laws relating to personal injuries not involving death have frequently been decried as barbarous the words used in the bible are eye for eye tooth for tooth hand for hand foot for foot burning for burning wound for wound stripe for stripe it will be readily understood that this law must have been a terror to evildoers and must have prevented many an act of violence at first sight it seems to foster the passion for revenge but in reality it manifests a spirit of mercy in an age when strong passions and lawlessness prevailed no better means could have been adopted than this for curbing the spirit of might against right and for protecting the weak against the strong before the giving of the law it frequently occurred that the man who had suffered an injury would himself or through his relatives inflict the like injury upon the offender a sort of lynch law prevailed such as even now prevails in some parts of italy corsica and sicily where the principle of personal revenge known as vendetta exists the mosaic law steps in between the injured party and the offender and declares that the offence must first be proved according to strict rules of evidence and if proved must be regarded as an offence against society which no longer the individual but the strong arm of the law must avenge it was to be no longer a case of private revenge which might overstep the bounds of justice and mete out a punishment disproportionate to the offence it was to be a case of calm deliberate decision by the judges according to strict rules of evidence and the punishment was to be no greater than the offence it is absolutely certain that the law of eye for eye was never really enforced it was intended rather as a threat to prevent crimes of violence 
and to indicate the extent of the debt due to the perpetrator to his victim, and be it understood that the law only referred to cases of personal injury intentionally inflicted. The infliction of accidental injury, or even of injuries resulting from a fair fight, was punished differently. The offender was, in such cases, to pay fair compensation, the amount being determined by the judges. We find that if two men fight and one injures the other, and he die not, but keepeth his bed, if he rise again and walk abroad upon his staff, then shall he that smote him be quit, only he shall pay for the loss of his time, and shall cause him to be thoroughly healed. The like principle of compensation is enforced in the cases of injuries resulting from negligence. If an ox known to have been mischievous gored a man to death, the ox was destroyed, the owner was considered responsible and deserving of the punishment of death, but he was allowed in this case to give compensation to the family of the victim in lieu of inflicting the punishment of death on the careless owner of the ox. If an ox injured a servant, the owner of the ox was bound to pay compensation to the master for the loss of service, and the ox was to be killed. It must be understood that in all these precepts, the ox is to be regarded only as a representative animal, being the beast most likely to inflict injury, and that similar laws were applicable to injuries resulting from the attacks of other animals. The law of battlements is another representative law, having for its object the protection of human life from possible danger. It is enacted that when thou buildest a new house, then thou shalt make a battlement for thy roof, that thou bring not blood upon thy house, if any man fall from thence. No modern code contains laws guarding more jealously the interest of human life and limb. The law just referred to doubtless had greater significance in oriental customs, where most of the roofs are flat, and where people walk about on the housetops. But the law equally applies to other places besides roofs, and indicates that any source of possible danger to life must be carefully and religiously avoided. Rights of Property It was declared unlawful to remove any boundary mark, defining the ancient limits of land, for the removal of such landmark might rob a neighbor of part of his possessions. It was declared unlawful to appropriate any lost property, and the finder was bound to search out the owner and restore the property to him. The master might not keep back the wages of his servant, but was bound to pay him promptly. Any injury done by leaving an open pit unprotected had to be paid for by the careless owner of the pit. If one ox killed another, the owners of the two oxen were to share the dead and living animals, but if the assailing ox was known to have been previously mischievous, and the owner had not tied him up, he had to pay ox for ox, but the dead animal became his property. Compensation was to be made for any injury to a field or to a vineyard caused by straying cattle, and in the case of the accidental burning of standing crops, the person who kindled the fire had to make restitution. If an animal or other property deposited with anyone was lost or stolen, damaged or destroyed, and the delinquent could not be discovered, he who had taken charge of the property had to be put on trial, and if he satisfied the judges by a statement on oath that he had not himself been the cause of the loss, theft, or damage, 
he was absolved. But he had to make good the loss if the animal or property had been lent to him, the actual owner not being present. The rights of property might not be unduly or harshly enforced against the very poor or against the hungry wayfarer. Those who had occasion to work in or were passing through a vineyard might eat some of the grapes, but might not carry away any with them. And a man passing through a cornfield might pluck a few ears of corn with his hand and eat them, but he was not allowed to cut any with his sickle and to remove them in bulk. Rights of Poverty The poor law of the Mosaic Code gave the poor certain rights whereby they might sustain life and even recover their lost position. Charity has always been looked upon by our race as a cardinal virtue. Even the enemies of our faith have always regarded the charity of the Jews as their greatest merit, and the care they have bestowed upon their poor has ever evoked the wonder and admiration of the Gentile world. However, the charity of our people has probably not been due to mere sentiment, but rather to a habit, the result of the action of our poor laws. The result, too, of the fact that the poor, in accordance with those laws, occupy a recognized position among us. The poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, and to thy needy in thy land. These words left much to the liberality of the individual, but there were certain rights which the poor possessed independently of such liberality. The gleanings of the field were not to be gathered by the farmer, nor was he permitted to reap the corn standing in the corners of the fields. These were to be left for the widow, the fatherless, and the stranger. So too the forgotten sheaf, the gleanings of the olive-yard and vineyard, and their second crop were to be left for the poor and stranger. We are enjoined to lend money to the poor, a loan being less humiliating than a gift and a loan to any of our own people must invariably be without interest. Thou shalt not give him thy money upon interest, nor lend him the victuals for increase. Interest was allowed to be charged to a non-Israelite if the money was borrowed for mercantile purposes, but it was not allowed to be charged if the debt was incurred by a stranger who had fallen into poverty, or who required help for his subsistence. At the end of every seven years a debt was cancelled. Every creditor that lendeth aught unto his neighbor shall release it. He shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother, because it is the Lord's release. Of a foreigner thou may exact it again. But even against the foreigner no act of oppression was allowed. Thou shalt neither vex a stranger nor oppress him, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt nor was the thought of the year of release and the possible loss of the money to weigh with the lender. Beware that there be not a wicked thought in thy heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and thine eye be evil against thy poor brother, and thou givest him naught, and he cry unto the Lord against thee, and it be sin unto thee. Thou shalt surely give him, and thine heart shall not be grieved when thou givest unto him. Again it is said, Thou shalt not harden thy heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother. Nor was the lender who took security for a loan to retain the article pledged, if it was an article of necessity. If thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment to pledge, 
thou shalt deliver it unto him by that the sun goeth down for that is his covering only it is his raiment for his skin wherein shall he sleep a widow's raiment might not be taken in pledge nor might any implement of daily labor be accepted as a security but the greatest of the rights of poverty was enforced by the law of tithe besides the tithe of all produce which was annually given to the levites the israelite was obliged to bring every third year the tenth part of his increase for the use of the poor at the end of three years thou shalt bring forth all the tithes of thine increase the same year and shalt lay it up within thy gates and the levite because he hath no part or inheritance with thee and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow which are within thy gates shall come and shall eat and be satisfied that the lord thy god may bless thee in all the work of thy hand which thou doest in every city storehouses were established for the reception of the tithe and from this reserve the needy were enabled to draw when misfortune befell them but even these were not the only rights of poverty the year of release was also the sabbatical year the year in which the land rested although during the sabbatical year the farmer was not doomed to idleness for he could dig water tanks erect farm buildings construct terraces for his vineyards repair his hedges and boundary walls the land had to rest so as to recruit its exhausted strength no seed was then sown nor vineyard pruned and no fruit gathered by the owner the produce of the sixth year being always sufficient for the consumption of three years but though the land was holy to rest on the seventh year the crops still grew the fruit still ripened all these crops and fruits belonged to the poor and this beneficent arrangement probably enabled them to clear themselves of debt by payment when their sense of honor would not permit the year of release to wipe off their obligation to their creditors the land laws every fiftieth year the year of jubilee all land that had been sold reverted to the original owner or to his family so the family of the poor man who had been compelled to sell his possessions became again possessed of worldly means and thus the institution of the jubilee at a time when land was the chief item of wealth prevented that cardinal evil of civilized life the concentration of wealth in the few to the detriment of the many a circumstance that gives rise to those terrible contrasts of modern society excessive wealth and excessive poverty except houses in walled cities which could be sold as a perpetual possession no landed property could be sold as freehold for the land is mine saith the lord we are told in the book of joshua how and when the israelites had arrived in the promised land and conquered it the country was divided by lot among the various tribes and each man had his share thus at the outset every one possessed his parcel of land now if a man became poor and sold his land he or his relatives might if they had the means at any time repurchase it paying for it according to the number of years that had to run to the jubilee even a house in a walled city which might be sold forever could be repurchased at the same price by the original owner at any time within a year of the sale but however poor he and his descendants might be in the year of the jubilee the land must revert to them and so their poverty would not be lasting 
all these laws tended to check the greed for acquiring land seemingly one of the appetites of man which if indulged in excess must tend to the prejudice of his fellow creatures education in these days when education is becoming general it is refreshing to turn back to the mosaic code and see what provision was there made for the instruction of the young and especially for their religious education the levites were the appointed instructors of the people they shall teach jacob thy judgments in israel thy law from the age of twenty-five to fifty they performed the service of god in the tabernacle or temple and after the age of fifty they ceased waiting upon the service but ministered with their brethren in the tabernacle of the congregation to keep the charge but though the levites were thus ordained to be the ministers of religion and the public teachers the holy law established a principle of religious instruction which was to be by far the most important part of education the instruction of children by their parents the laws of god were not to be taught solely by public teachers thou shalt teach them diligently to thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way it was to be the province of parents to instill religion into their own children not only for the sake of the children but for their own sakes moses tells the people only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life but teach them thy children and thy children's children to teach religion to our children is to keep religion alive both in ourselves and in them what teaching can be so forcible as a parent's teaching and what lesson can be so impressive as the lesson given by a father to his children while walking abroad with them discoursing of the wonders of nature and the will of nature's god and so when god gave ordinances for the guidance of his chosen race he established a testimony in jacob and appointed a law in israel which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children that the generation to come might know them even the children which should be born who should arise and declare themselves to their children that they may set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. History shows that many branches of knowledge have been lost, and many arts and sciences utterly forgotten, because parents have neglected the natural duty of teaching their own children. This happened with the ancient Egyptians, greatest of all nations of antiquity in the arts of construction, in science and in philosophy. Their knowledge became lost to the world, because instruction was in the hands of a privileged and dominant class, the priests, who used their position for their own aggrandizement, keeping their knowledge to themselves and leaving the multitude in ignorance and superstition. So with the ancient Chinese, conspicuous among Eastern nations for the cultivation of science and literature. Nearly all their knowledge was lost to the world in the like manner, but our code maintains knowledge to be the heritage of the whole human race and not the monopoly of priest or levite it declares that there are to be no priestly mysteries or secrets that education is a public right of the whole nation as well as a private duty of parent to child that all revealed knowledge is public property 
that though the secret things belong to the lord our god those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever religious toleration it has been frequently charged against the mosaic code that it was wanting in mercy and toleration inasmuch as it preached the wholesale destruction of certain idolatrous tribes of canaan the fact that the israelites were entrusted with the duty of utterly exterminating those tribes must be candidly admitted they were ordered to save alive nothing that breatheth and the fact is certainly a terrible one even the women and children were to be slaughtered why this fearful carnage the bible answers the question the seven idolatrous tribes the hittites girgashites amorites canaanites perizzites hevites and jabusites were to be exterminated that they teach you not to do after all their abominations which they have done unto their gods what those abominations were we know not precisely for the pentateuch only hints at certain of these crimes too fearful to mention there must have been pollution in everything they touched for we read that moses ordered all the spoils of midian to be destroyed except such things as could pass through the fire and could thus be purified there are mental and moral diseases as loathsome and as infectious as any which affect the body may it not have been even an act of supreme mercy that god by a terrible act of extermination prevented the evil from increasing and spreading till the whole world became a mass of corruption when then we read of these fearful wars of extermination we must not regard them as evincing anything like a want of forbearance or toleration towards followers of a religion differing from our own and we should rather seek in the pentateuch for the special laws which teach us how we should treat members of an alien faith we are told thou shalt not vex a stranger nor oppress him for ye were strangers in the land of egypt even the egyptians by whom the israelites had been so unmercifully treated were to be requited with charitable forbearance thou shalt not abhor an egyptian because thou wast a stranger in his land the law knew no difference between jew and gentile if a stranger sojourn with you in your land ye shall not vex him but the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you and thou shalt love him as thyself for ye were strangers in the land of egypt one law shall be to him that is home-born and one unto the stranger that sojourneth among you a stranger was permitted to join in the divine service of the tabernacle and temple and was even allowed to bring an offering to the altar of god if a stranger sojourn with you or whosoever be among you in your generations and will offer an offering made by fire of a sweet savour unto the lord as ye do so shall he do one ordinance shall be both for you and also for the stranger that sojourneth with you an ordinance forever in your generations as ye are so shall be the stranger before the lord no lesson of religious toleration could be enforced in stronger terms than those the bible practically tells us if god can thus tolerate those who believe not in the true religion why should not we he loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment love ye therefore the stranger there is however a kind of spurious tolerance which is not the result of true philosophy or 
true liberality, but rather the effect of religious indifference. It is common enough to hear persons indifferent to religion say that one religion is as good as another. Against such indifference the Bible warns us there may be no lax attachment to our religion. There must be full and complete loyalty to the one and only true God. That such loyalty need not detract from our tolerance of the religions of others may be best proved by reference to a prayer, perhaps the most remarkable in the whole Bible, the prayer of King Solomon at the dedication of the temple. He craves the blessing of heaven on the building he has raised to the glory of God, and begs that the prayers and supplications that he and his people may there offer may be favorably answered, and then he craves the same blessing for those who are not of his own faith. Moreover, concerning the stranger which is not of thy people Israel, but is come from a far country, for thy great name's sake, and thy mighty hand, and thy outstretched arm, if they come and pray in this house, then hear thou from the heavens, even from thy dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calleth to thee for. We know from the Talmudical and other accounts of the temple that this prayer was not, as some might suppose, the mere individual expression of a wise liberal king, for it has been found that surrounding the raised platform on which the temple was erected, in a line between the outer portico and the temple proper, there was a great corridor, thirty cubits, forty-five feet wide, which was known as the court of Gentiles, destined for the worship of strangers, and that this court was many times larger than the court of the men of Israel. The prayer of King Solomon and its application to the Gentile world was therefore no dead letter. The liberal spirit which pervades this noble prayer is the spirit of our holy law. If that spirit had permeated the two creeds which have sprung from our religion, then history would not have had to record, as it unfortunately does, so many stories of persecution, so many reigns of terror, so many orgies of fire and sword. The Jew, acting in the spirit of the Mosaic Code, proclaims all men equal in the sight of God. He hopes and believes that the day will come when all the world will recognize the one true God. Till then, there may be many religions. There can be but one morality. And so our sages, in the true spirit of toleration, have declared that the righteous of every faith have their share in the world to come. End of Part 2, Chapter 7